to London Lopate at Large. I'm London Lopate. Months after Donald Trump took office, former EPA Administrator Jenna McCarthy described the White House as being engaged in a full-throated attack on science. Since then, the administration has reduced the role of science in policymaking and in government studies, and in some cases, even tried to bar researchers from speaking publicly. And the United States is not the only country where the sciences are under attack. What effect is that having? Can growing hostility to the sciences undermine democracy, or is diminishing confidence in democracy eroding trust in science? Michael J. Thompson, a professor of political theory at William Patterson University, and Gregory Smolwitz-Zucker, a Ph.D. candidate in political science at Rutgers, have co-edited Anti-Science and the Assault on Democracy, a collection of essays exploring the relationship between science and democracy. It's published by Prometheus, and I'm very pleased to welcome Michael J. Thompson and Gregory Smolwitz-Zucker to our show now. Hi. Thank you. Thank you. Michael, scientists aren't alone in raising concerns about climate change denial, for example, or and the, the anti-vax movement and other issues. But what do you mean by the anti-science in your title? Is there a more pervasive sentiment against the sciences in general? I think that um, what we see emerging now is uh, a kind of consolidation of attitudes among many people that science um, is, in, in some ways, telling them what to do. That and they resent that? And it's, it's, yes. I think part of it is resentment. Part of it is also, I think, a phenomenon that's really emerged over the past 20 years, the emergence of, uh, partly because of social media and the Internet, kind of bubble um, uh, ways of thinking, that people are isolated from kind of more critical views about how they live their lives. And um, I also think there's just a general fear about government and about um, kind of uh, authority telling people what to do. And I think that's part of what the anti-vax movement is about. It's pseudoscientific in the sense that um, it really isn't based on empirical trends. And I think there's an inherent, I wouldn't even call it skepticism, it's more important to call it cynicism about mm. science and about facts. Gregor, do political scientists and theorists believe that science and democracy go hand in hand? It depends really who you speak with. Um, I don't think this is uh, an area that has been deeply examined. I mean, there are certainly— Does one promote the other? Well, that's one of the cases that we're trying to make in this volume, is that the two are—that um, they um, nurture— or can nurture each other. But really, this has been um, something that's been more a set of arguments that has been you know, dealt with by people in the natural sciences, people in philosophy and history, but not so much from a really political standpoint. Is this something that's happening only recently? What about the Greeks who uh, invented democracy and uh, were also interested in science? I think... Uh Modern science is different mm. from classical science, first of all. And part of this, uh, well, one of the things that happened to, say, classical democracy in Athens was it did lead to the Peloponnesian Wars. It led to a lot of self-destructive political behavior, uh, among them being the execution of Socrates. Mm. Modern science, though, I think is premised on some different ideas. And I think this is where the crux of the argument comes into play. Modern democracy is different from 
ancient democracy, just like modern science is different from ancient science. And they kind of emerged out of a, a common struggle against medieval church-based authority. So we're seeing this at the, probably the beginnings of the 18th, late 18th century onto our time. For, for certain. So you have, with the Renaissance, there's a kind of breaking apart of the kind of Christian medieval worldview. And part of this was scientific. Um, people like Galileo. I mean, Galileo questioning the concepts of nature that were kind of codified by uh, the church. So what happened? Galileo, Copernicus, did uh, the people who were even aware of what they were doing, did they all uh, appreciate that work, or was there a lot of controversy even I, then? I actually think it's the opposite. What they were saying was, for a thousand years, fifteen hundred years, two thousand years, whatever it is, we have accepted these truths, but no one has tested them. Mm-hmm. So Aristotle, for example, in Aristotle's Physics, um, part of the contention is that heavier objects fall faster than lighter objects, and people believed this for centuries mm-hmm. and centuries until Galileo said, "Maybe we should test this and see if it's true." On the other hand, uh, the Greeks uh, knew that the some Greek scientists knew that the Earth was round, uh, but it, that was resisted. It was resisted. It was well. If you look at the, what they happened, even even came up with a calculation that was pretty close, very close. to the size of, of Earth. That's right. And um, uh, really, what brings that period of kind of Hellenistic science to an end is the emergence of Christianity. So there's there's this tendency for religion to say. Well, in medieval, late classical world and medieval world, to say uh, that human reason has to know limits. There have to be limits upon human rationality, um, and religion would would provide the rest for you. But in the modern world, what I think which is really important is its legacy of what we know as the Enlightenment is the idea that you can't have science without having freedom. Mm-hmm. That mm-hmm. part of people assume that science came first and then you have freedom of thought. But actually, it's the reverse. You really need to have people being able to think freely in order for them to question the authority Mm -hmm. of authorities. They have to feel they have the freedom to to do these explorations. Gregory, in this book and in an essay last April in Salon called Democracy Has a Problem with Science, you and Michael linked anti-science views to a backlash against elites. Yes, um, that is the focus of my essay, and I think one of the key components of the perhaps strategies of um, people who are opposed to science is to falsely portray scientists or any sort of person who can claim expertise as an elite. And I think this is problematic because not only is does this aid the assault on science, but it also creates confusion about what the, what the nature of an elite is. And I think this is a problem because we do need to be able to identify who the elites in our society are, and, this, and I think this is a, a intentional effort to We'll, we'll get to the intentional yeah, in a right. moment. Okay. Are, are Americans often of two minds about science, seeing it as authoritative while distrusting it as elitist? Yes, I think so. I mean, what, part of the sad irony is the fact that we're so reliant on the sciences. On, I mean, just about all, all of us have these technologies that are the product of 
the advances of the sciences in our back pockets and our with our cell phones but at the same time when it comes to the actual methods of science or the broader claims that science makes though that is clearly perceived as a threat uh, there are some people who believe there that there's a decline in democracy underway independent of any skepticism about science well we oh. because we're seeing it uh we're seeing uh authoritarian 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 governments pop up all over the world again populism whatever phrase you want to use suddenly uh eastern europe which uh was almost decimated by uh to uh, terrible uh, Nazism and communism, uh, now is bringing back uh, strong leaders, bringing back dictators. We're seeing uh, dictators in South America or the equivalent of dictators in South America. Sure. And one of the. In Africa as well. Absolutely. One of the interesting features of this populist authoritarian turn, at least in Eastern Europe, is the fact that they are so anti-science and so eager to return to traditionalist values. So for instance, there was a public showing, I'd say about two years ago in Poland, where Jesus was proclaimed the king of Poland. This was a public event in which you know the president attended. And, um, and then, for example, about two years ago, Michael and I were at a conference in Hungary in Budapest, where um, the philosopher who was the subject of the conference, who had been dead since 1971, someone put a wreath in front of his old apartment with the words Jewish science written across it. So, But, but science wasn't uh, maligned under not in Nazi Germany. Uh, it was, uh, in fact, if anything, it was celebrated, wasn't it? And uh, to some degree in the Soviet Union as well. I, you know, it's interesting um, where science ends and technology or techne begins. Because if you think about true, I mean, true science um, th that is really open to inquiry, open to say that the truth is something that we don't know, uh -huh. that is something distinctive about the scientific attitude, which makes it difficult. In other words, going against the conventional wisdom Correct. is different than just uh, being very good at uh, doing nuclear science. Right. And techne is the manipulation of nature. Uh, in order for a specific end. It's the instrumentalization of things. But this is the thing. I think science endem is going back to your question about the rise of authoritarianism. Science and democracy are difficult. They're difficult to do. They're difficult to maintain because they're social conventions. They're social institutions. And they can undermine very quickly our familiar, comfortable way of relating to the world. So a return to tradition a, 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 a prizing of authority makes perfect sense in a world where people feel disoriented and that they don't have control. In your essay in the book titled Science and the Democratic Mind, you argue that our culture has collapsed technology and science. Can you explain what you mean by that? Yes. I and how actually, that might be a problem? Yeah. I think that we assume, well, first of all, the distinction between science and technology are, is really significant. I think technology is the application of certain scientific ideas for the manipulation of either nature or other people. Um, so, uh, whereas science is driven by 
a kind of open inquiry about the discovery of the new. And these are two different ethics about how do you relate to the world. So is there an expectation nowadays that science has to be practical or even profitable? Yes. I mean, this is one of the things that recodes the sciences, um, the way you get educated. I mean, a lot of people will educate their children and they think they're educating them in the sciences by sending them to, you know, some, I don't know, technological camp or robot camp or something. The truth of the matter is science really is about, and I remember this when I was a child um, in the 80s, growing up watching Carl Sagan's uh, Cosmos, for example. It, it taps into what the Greeks really saw as the fundamental aim of science was not the manipulation of the world. It was wonder. They called it uh, thaum, thaumadzein, right? This idea of that it's, it's magnificent to understand the truth. Our world and, and that's why science is part of what undergirds science is this idea of experiment, experimenting to figure out the new. Technology is the opposite in many ways. So uh, in a 1945 report to President Roosevelt, uh, Vannevar Bush, the MIT engineer and founder of Raytheon, wrote of science being put to practical use and, among other things, allowing us more leisure time and freeing us of, quote, the deadening drudgery, which has been the burden of the common man for ages past. So is part of the problem that many feel that promise hasn't been met or uh, that that promise is probably still not uh, totally the, 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 the correct one? I, it, one of the things that happens perhaps when science uh, is not accountable to public interests is that it can be used as by the powerful for their own interests. And I think this is one of the things that you see um, science becoming Im embedded in from the 1950s and 60s through the 70s and 80s and today, that science has become more and more absorbed by the private sphere, mm -hmm. by the private sector. So not for, I think in 1950, 1945, 1950, the view would have been, ah, the state is going to sponsor science. It's going to sponsor, I mean, you had NASA, now you have uh, Elon Musk mm -hmm. saying, yeah. "I just because he wants to go to the moon. So that becomes a priority. So now that the, the power has shifted from the state to private capital, science therefore also changes because it's not as accountable to public interests or public needs. Uh, Gregory, does uh, scientific work involve a way of thought that's under attack? I do think that that's the case um, in the sense that I, the practice or, or the scientific attitude, as Lee McIntyre has called in a recent uh, book, involves a, a challenge to authority. And what we're witnessing now is, um, especially in populism in its various guises, is a sort of longing for authority, a longing for um, a leader who can claim to know the will of the people that the people don't even know themselves. Um, so there's a comfort in that, I think. And it, it, it cultivates a kind of complacency. And there's a, and there's a comfort in custom and a return to yeah. custom and tradition. Because, like I said before, I think this is really true. To be free, to be part of a democracy, and to do, think scientifically, it's difficult. It really does challenge our comfortable ways of seeing the world. My guests are Michael <clears throat> J. Thompson and Gregory Smolowitz-Zucker. Their book, Anti-Science and the Assault on Democracy. This is London located at large on WBAI New York.
99.5 FM. You write about what you call the democratic mind. Uh, is there a scientific mind to go with the democratic mind? I think there – I really do think that they go together. Um, and I think that the Enlightenment thinkers like – people like Jefferson and the rest, they saw that science was something that was calling into question encrusted belief systems – encrusted belief systems that were, in fact, legitimating social hierarchies. And I think that science, one of the things is, I think science, the more that you look at the way science has opened up for us um, or deconstructed or exploded conceptions of race, of gender, these were considered to be common sense ideas about how the world should be patterned. And science exploded these things. But uh, science was invoked by the eugenics movement, although it also was cited in support of civil rights and equal rights. Mm. Uh, but eugenics, is that just a distortion of science? Well, I, um, what's interesting about that uh, that case, for example, I think of the, the there's a little-known Haitian intellectual, Antenor Furman, who in the 19th century actually used Darwin, used uh, um, the methods of natural sciences to debunk um, what was then known as race theory. So he took on one of the most notorious uh, racists of the 19th century, Arthur de Gobineau, and he showed that Gobineau was getting Darwin wrong. And um, it, it's remarkable to look at this this work um, by De Gobineau was doing something like eugenics. He was reading Darwin as... Uh, uh, the survival of the fittest, and that that meant white people dominating? Gobineau's method was a little bit different, but he was certainly taken up by people like Houston Stewart Chamberlain and a whole host of now, you know, forgotten racists, but there there were the social Darwinists, and Furman took them on, and he really did um, use the methods of the natural sciences to challenge them. And in many ways, many of the critiques that subsequent um, philosophers of race or intellectuals dealing with race, they're not making arguments that different from what Furman was doing in, mm-hmm. oh, the 1880s, 1890s. And there's a danger of this returning now. I think that, you know, we have this idea that's reasserted itself in the popular imagination coming from academia, say, for example, about genetics, genetic and, you know, um, in terms of uh, genes being <clears throat> determinative of, uh, say, psychiatric disorders or other things, whereas the evidence really does not support this. Really? The evidence, I mean, the but model Don't certain of, things run in families? It, 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 let's it, say schizophrenia or... It, 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 the, if you look at the idea that, the gene, that if you carry the gene, whether that's how determinative that is of you actually getting it, um, it's actually very minimal. That the idea that human beings... Our machines, that we have this chemistry that determines us, is a very different model of, of, of humanity than one that says we're social, we interact with our environment. There is geno, There are genotypes, but there's also phenotypes, that there is a kind of uh, the environment does affect us, natural and social. So there's a danger of this coming, of returning, this idea of seeing us as a machine. And I think really this is, goes back also within the Enlightenment tradition itself, there's this emergence of a kind of new tension that science emerges, it's this critique of tradition, etc. But the method, the model that they proposed was that human beings or even society, instead of being an organism the way that the Greeks or the Romans would have seen society as a kind of organism of, of interdependence, now the 
after Descartes and people like Hobbes, now the model of the human being and of society became the machine. It's the techne. It's the tech, you know. So this idea persists in an, and it, it makes sense in a society that's still imprinted by the industrial age that we would see ourselves as machines. We'd see the brain as a machine. But well, this especially is, since people are being replaced by robots these days. Exactly, exactly. And the question of whether that's really democratic or not isn't asked. We look at it as inevitable. We look at science as this thing that even though we create technology, we look in our. If you think about the popular imagination, think of movies like The Terminator or uh, 2001 A Space Odyssey, the machine becomes this object. It's our creation. But the machine becomes the object that returns to victimize us. And I think there's a fundamental alienation in our culture that's, that's, that, that sees technology as being having its own determinism, its own path, independent of our decisions. And that's dangerous because that can let, that's where democracy loses track. Of, of technology. Uh, have attitudes toward the sciences changed across the political spectrum for Americans broadly or just for some segments? I think that attitudes have changed broadly. Um, I think it's, there's there are many different factors contributing to this. Um, certain well, for example, workers who might very well have in, uh, had a strong beliefs in science now, uh, uh, according to what Michael was just saying, now feeling threatened by science because they, uh, it, it means that they may very well lose their jobs or sure. uh, or have to learn all sorts of things that they uh, didn't expect to have to learn. Absolutely, and also there's you know the phenomenon of what the threat of climate change is doing to traditional religious belief. Um, you know, there there people who will not accept the reality of climate change because it it really distorts the conception of the place of a deity in the universe in much the same way that uh, the the emergence of the the heliocentric theory did it's 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 profoundly disturbing that if there's a god how can this god let nature just you know uh, um, how let the planet die or if you think of scott pruitt the former epa uh, director who said who had subscribed to this kind of protestant christian idea that uh, god made nature for us to be able to exploit it. Its purpose, it was there for us to use, to cultivate, extract. I mean, that was its purpose. I mean, these are very different um, ways of perverting. I mean, and again, technology need not make a distinction between whether it's being used to destroy the planet or you being used to solve or cure cancer. Democracy and science, therefore, are really crucial reservoirs, we think at least, for this. But climate change affects everybody, uh, sure. liberals, conservatives, and everybody in between. And yet, uh, most of the deniers are conservatives. Uh, you're suggesting, Michael, there's a religious component. What about a political component? I think that, um, yes, a political component. I think it's a different way of thinking. It's a different form of what you could call, I guess, moral cognition. Um, and one of the psychologists I cite in my essay um, was a guy named Milton Rokic who wrote a book in 1960 called The Open and Closed Mind. And basically what he set out was this idea that um, people with so-called open minds are those willing to question the assumptions that they have about the world, and there are people who are, have closed minds. And these are people who are absolutely unwilling to question the axioms that they assume about right and wrong. And Does this apply just to conservatives, or do, are there liberal issues as well? It's It's... It's definitely more 
uh, a part of what conservatism is. I mean, the, if you think of the foundation, philosophically what the foundation of conservatism is, is literally to conserve tradition, to conserve the past, to conserve what has worked in the past. And that, I think, that exhibits features of somewhat closed-mindedness. Obviously, it doesn't apply to every conservative, clearly. Um, and, of course, there would be liberals who would be closed-minded about some of their axiomatic beliefs. But as a general trend, um, I think open-mindedness goes along with the ethos of science and the ethos of democracy. Uh, Gregor, you were kind of suggesting earlier uh, that there's a, a link between anti-science attitudes to rising populist movements. And, and uh, in this book, uh, there's, you talk about openness to submitting to authority. It, yes. Um, well, I think that when you have a rising populist movement, what you gain comfort from is the fact that you have a personification of the people's will in the form of the leader. And this is, the, this is true of Donald Trump. This is true of um, Orban in Hungary, Duterte in, in, in the Philippines. And so there is a kind of comfort in sacrificing your capacity for critical thought to this person who presents themselves as somewhat omniscient. Now, why would a Duterte even have hostility towards science? I mean, he has, obviously has hostility toward drug dealers. <laughs> well, I think um, part of the problem, and this goes back to Michael's point about the intimate relationship between democracy and science, is that the scientific attitude does encourage uh, questioning of authority. And that is an important feature. And so one of the reasons why it becomes necessary to rein in science is because uh, scientists point, or when they're at their best, point out uncomfortable um, facts. Well, how aware is the general public of major findings in the sciences? How well are journalists doing in conveying and explaining scientific ideas to the public? I, you know, I don't, I, I think the way it generally the general public um, kind of comes into contact with scientific um, studies is through a kind of sensationalist journalistic approach for the most part. Um, I mean, it's very easy to kind of cherry pick a study that was done over 150 people and say people who ate this one berry lived three years longer than people who didn't eat this berry. And this is going to become, if you don't know how the scientific process works in the sense of this being just one kind of finding among hundreds more, then you would think, oh, this must be true. And, and this is, I think, a problem. Well, the Times has a science section once a week, yes. uh, but it seems to me that the, uh, the popular science magazines that uh, almost everybody I knew read when I was a kid don't have the kind of circulation they used to have. Uh, is that because they haven't been doing their job or because people are no longer interested in what they have to say? I think, I think our education system has also transformed. I think during the Cold War um, that science was, and we were competing with uh, another civilization, quote-unquote, that was very highly technological and scientific. We were competing and when I was a child, I was still, you know, there was still the Soviet Union. And uh, going to a working class public school, they were emphasizing science because I think they knew this. On the other hand, uh, 
with, with nuclear threats, they had us hiding underneath our desks. Now, if somebody had dropped a bomb, an atomic bomb, uh, radiation would be killing us whether we were under our desks or not, and nobody even made that clear to us. Well, those truths are really uncomfortable. <laughs> right. So it's, those are what, part of the ways that, uh, you know, sometimes... The glass wouldn't get us, but the, the radiation right, would. Right, right. <laughs> Haven't some argued that reporting on climate change, even by leading news organizations, has been pretty inadequate for years? Well, yes. I mean, the, the, the issue is that um, there are people who are now finding um, alternative sets of sources to support their um, their um, the bi their biases, really. I mean, this is something I think that's unique now um, with respect to the spread of YouTube and social media. I mean, you can really live in your own bubble where, you know, for example, I'm not sure how many people are actually adhering to beliefs about the flat earth, but it's certainly getting more publicity, and they're certainly becoming more vocal, and you can stay— They're still flat earth people? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> and they seem— they, they haven't seen the pictures? Well, they, 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 they have all sorts of arguments about the pictures, which are they're ridiculous. Yeah, they're all faked, uh, according to them. But th this is one of the interesting aspects of the phenomenon. And this is also, I think, raises a, 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 a very peculiar situation going back to the issue of issues of race and racism and how people perceive the function of science because there becomes a kind of celebration of science as um, skepticism for the sake of skepticism. Which, and so on that basis, it becomes a justification for... Um, uh, uh, publications like American Renaissance, which is a neo, essentially a neo-Nazi organization, to say, well, you know, we should question whether or not there are superior and inferior races, because that's what science is all about, really being skeptical about what people tell us. So responsible scientists and journalists are now competing with pseudoscientists and, and internet trolls who want to uh, influence public opinion. I think want to reinforce the common, what people see as the common sense relationship they have with the world. And because the constant onslaught of facts, science, I mean, climate change really provides for us probably the most, the apex of this kind of example. It undermines every comfortable aspect of life that we have. What we eat, what we drink, how we get it, the cities we live in, all of it uh, is being revealed as unsustainable and undermining. The more that you learn about climate change, the more you realize that even your personal choices don't have the same, uh, really can't even solve the problem. So some people might say, well, the science is urging me to change and I want to do things differently. Others might say, you know, I, I want what makes me comfortable and I'm going to listen to other alternative ways of understanding this. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM. Besides wars, chemistry, physics, which field is best? I understand the force and energy, quantum mechanics and relativity. My field is pure and they rely on me. I see the universe like nobody. You may have made fun of me in high school for being awkward and following the rules. Now I 
robot lasers. Wow, that's really cool. May the mass times acceleration be with you. Adam's entropy. We are back with Michael J. Thompson, professor of political theory at William Patterson University, and Gregory Smolowitz-Zucker, a Ph.D. candidate in political science at Rutgers, who they have co-edited Anti-Science and the Assault on Democracy. It is published by Prometheus. Are there some people who are leading attacks on science, or is there just a growing groundswell of anti-scientific sentiment? I think there are people leading uh, attacks on science. Certainly, unfortunately, a large portion of the Republican Party is leading an attack on science and endangering this planet. Another force is certainly, um, unfortunately, also a a whole set of new ageist beliefs. Um, Perhaps they're less dangerous in the sense that they aren't uh, blocking um, uh, policy to address climate change, but they're still, I think, distorting conceptions of what science is. Um, so there, there are a number of forces at play. There are also um, a, a set of uh, people in academia who have made careers off of um, questioning the validity of the sciences. Are they encouraged by people who fund their work? Um, or are I, they do, or do they just see themselves as doing the scientific thing by being skeptics? No, I mean what they are doing is is something that actually has its sources in um, shifts in the nature of um, what was popular philosophy really in the United States starting in the in the 1980s, drawing off of theories that had really first developed in France. So it's a much more um, uh, institutional academic story and sort of intellectual history story on that well, I think there's also, you know, the role of corporations in many domains of American life um, have been absolutely crucial, not only in uh, funding a research that uh, deflects, um, you know, say about uh, climate change or environmental impacts of industrialization. I mean, this really is one of the core roots, I think, of establishment anti-science mentality. It's funded through think tanks in Washington. It's so I mean the Koch brothers? Absolutely. And, and the fossil fuel yes. industry? Exxon, yes, the, and these are crucial. But, and as Greg was pointing out, I think this is really important, um, far-left academic thinking uh, has infected also uh, a libertarian idea about science, that uh, science is just an uh, expression of power. Uh, it's an expression of, uh, of, of an ability for um, you to be absorbed into the group and a groupthink. And this kind of, this from both ends, um, from the left and the far left and the, and the standard right, has really chopped apart that Enlightenment idea that science and democracy go together. But uh, had, was it, hasn't it been debunked in the past big tobacco attack cancer research? Uh, the paint industry tried to suppress research on the risks of lead. Uh, so, how does this con- is able? How is this able to continue? Because we've already we we know that tobacco is linked to cancer, and we know that lead consumption can kill people. So, um, 
climate change, the same sort of thing? Uh, or is it just simply a matter of, of the fossil fuel industry uh, not wanting to be regulated because uh, that would mean that they'd have to change their business practices? Well, I, it seems to me that there are a number of issues and a number of things that have changed since big tobacco was, was challenged or the, the paint industry was challenged. One of, the, I think, the long-term strategies was to weaken regulation. I mean, that was something that was consciously undertaken so that, you know, um, the, the medicines that we receive, all these things, uh, it, it, you know, that these um, processes of reviewing um, the safety of these items, these commodities, um, was undermined. And then also, you know, you don't necessarily have to reach the public in the same way because you can also promote these ideas through social media or you can promote them through conspiracy web theory websites. So it kind of takes on a life of its own as well. And then, for example, uh, during the Clinton and Obama administrations, there were moves to limit the CDC's research on firearm violence. Yeah. Um, I, I You just mentioned guns in our yeah. society, and suddenly there's a large no, – chunk of people in this country who get all upset yeah uh i that is an example of another example of how industry can distort or prevent science from emerging um right now there's a big debate in i think it's new jersey where your state uh where people uh, an attempt to limit oh no it's virginia the attempt to limit guns uh uh for safety purposes, the gun owners are saying uh, guns are what are, are what make us safe. Well, there's going to be. I think it's this weekend. There's going to be yeah. a big uh, far right rally in support of uh, gun rights. Um, so, you can uh, every constituency can have a reason to say use anti science for its own purposes and interests, um, and maybe that's part of the democratic dialogue seen from one angle, but from another angle, um, it's becoming manifest that. These policies are really the ones that are rising to the top. Uh, the Trump administration has stripped far more than any other Republican administration uh, aspects of uh, scientific review, of peer review, not just about the environment, but in, about environmental science, but the weather. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, on almost every gun impacts of gun, um, uh, mental health, almost every agency has been stripped. The Times had a huge article. Uh, couple of weeks ago, Science Under Attack, How Trump is Sidelining Researchers and Their Work. And Michael Girard uh, at Columbia University has said, the disregard for expertise in the federal government is worse than it's ever been. Mm -hmm. Philip Duffy, the president of the Woods Hole Research uh, Center, criticized the White House for politicizing science. And he says uh, uh, that he's worried about the long-term impact. Some people are predicting that Things are going to get pretty rough if we don't do something about climate change very soon. And I think that the disrepute, not only from the right, but from from the general population, that you have growing anti-scientific sentiment that's rooted in the idea that experts are somehow elites. Mm -hmm. And I think this is a really important distinction about science. People who are people who are truly trained in science would never call themselves elites or experts they would say maybe they would say i have an expertise in something but they would always know that any theory they advance for it to be truly scientific it has to be falsifiable in other words i have to hold out the idea that this can be falsified we've done recent shows on uh, the people who 
set out to prove that Einstein's theory of relativity was correct. Uh, and uh, we've talked about quantum mechanics and people working today still to prove some of the very odd ideas of quantum mechanics and string theory. But uh, that seems to me to be a positive thing. Yeah. Uh, I think if you look at physics, it's, it's, it's fascinating. I think when you look at biology, it changes a little bit. because The, in, the it, genetics and... Well, not just genetics, but I think the science of biology really shows how, how far science can go in really understanding the fundamental mechanisms of how, say, life operates. And I think that's one way of saying that these are places, these are, there are certain branches of science that you can say, it's no longer just a hypothesis mm -hmm. that this is how photosynthesis works. We, we kind of understand the full mechanism. It may not be the case with string theory is an attempt at understanding how these different things we observe happen. But I think in certain sciences, we have a kind of fundamental way of understanding things. And it's very powerful. Do you think Donald Trump and his allies genuinely are genuinely skeptical, or um, have they stoked anti-science hostility largely for political gain? I think it's purely for politics. Mm -hmm. I mean, think about what you get on your side. You get uh, people who are, um, say, against um, science, teaching science in schools, in public schools. You get uh, pro-certain religious groups. You get corporate groups. You really get that what conservatism American conservative politics needs. How can you sell elite policies to a democratic public? So, you know, you need to bring these together, this coalition. But some of the, the arguments seem almost ludicrous. For example, when the president complains that environmental regulations are face, forcing us to flush a toilet 10 times or, or use the dishwasher 10 times, uh, people know that's not true. It's, but it does resonate with the idea that um, liberalism is in some ways equivalent to a new form of totalitarianism. Yeah. This is how you're supposed to think about gender. This is how you're supposed to think about the bathroom. You know, if you can make that link between how many times you have to flush the toilet, these are these experts out there telling you how to live every minutia of your life. This stokes resistance, or it maybe amplifies resistance that people already have to, to an administrative welfare state. In another essay in your book, the philosopher Philip Kitcher notes that Plato held that government was too difficult to be left to the ignorant. <laughs> Are we going through a, a period right now, or is, it, is this something that we've been uh, experiencing for a while now? Uh-huh, okay. Neither of you want well, to answer that? or I mean, this is an old debate in American uh, um, politics, uh, you know, and it's a more recent iteration takes the form of Walter Lippmann's debate with John Dewey. Um, and that Einstein really didn't uh, want us to develop the atomic bomb because right. he saw it as potentially dangerous for the f far into the future. I mean, I think what, what the al one alternative is to actually um, democratize the conception of what an expert is and uh, democratize the conception of expertise. And really, um, because one of the things that we see time and time again with administrations is that the experts are plucked from a certain ideological profile really or a certain set of um, uh, or a certain group of institutions and so we really haven't seen um, a democratization of 
expertise. And one of the things that I point out in, in my chapter is that when you look at, for example, the um, Roosevelt administration, it was a much more um, uh, diverse, intel- intellectually diverse group of people taking on leadership roles within that administration than we saw, for example, in the Obama administration or you know, Bill Clinton's administration. Um, they were primarily concerned with um, selecting people who fit a certain ideological profile. And I think as economic inequality worsens, um, you're seeing that um, access to certain kinds of education and forms of awareness is shrinking, that the scope of people who have scientific literacy or really know what the scientific method is and can appreciate it and understand its context, that that is becoming reserved f- for fewer and fewer people. And that's making it, and that's that means that science. It's it's not only that science seems elitist; it really does track the social reality that, uh, say, science is being underfunded in many public schools, whereas in wealthy neighborhoods they'll have that education. So there's a kind of divide that's emerging about scientific literacy within the community as at large, and this really does, I think, back up the the, the notion that who are these people? Who are these elites in New York? or in uh, Berkeley uh, telling us what water we should drink or what, what we should do. Uh, are some uh, areas attacked more than others? Uh, you, you mentioned evolution because of people's religious beliefs. Uh, are the sciences often seen as threatening uh, deeply held personal beliefs? Going back to Plato, <laughs> one of Plato's, you know, in the Republic, one of the things that Plato says, this really stands the test of time, I think, that uh, what does it mean to be a philosopher? What does, it, what does it take, he asks. And he says, the crucial thing, it's not about learning all these mathematics and all this stuff. The crucial thing is that you are able to cleanse yourself of all of the assumptions and prejudices that you carry within you. That every time you approach a problem, you're able to say, approach it fresh and new. And I think that, is, and what Plato really knew was not that it was so difficult to be an elite because you had to be so intelligent. Really, the, the, the idea was you had to have a psychological power of cleansing yourself of prejudice mm. and preconceived ideas. I think it's really important in a society where you work 12 hours a day, where you live in a, some, or maybe don't work enough, <laughs> or, or either overworked or underworked, um, where you feel alienated that you don't you need comfort you need some something to hold on to that's steady and science isn't going to give you that it's going to tell you a question uh, we've been trying to find out how far back this goes in 1964 56 years ago the historian richard huffstadter wrote won a pulitzer for his book anti-intellectualism in american life and he was obviously responding to things that were happening then. Are we talking about similar things? Paranoia, yes. Mm-hmm. I think there is a, a sense that, um, I mean, what he's responding to is not just a general trend of anti-intellectualism, intellectualism, but also this idea that there's a paranoid style in, American, in, in democracies. The Greeks suffered from the same thing. I mean, they execute Socrates because what, what was the charge? One of the charges was that he was, destroy, he was corrupting the youth. And how was he corrupting the youth? He was teaching them to un- question the religious beliefs. That causes this paranoia about reason. It causes a paranoia about criticism and therefore about the scientific attitude. 
Am I in danger because I don't believe that Zeus is the king of the gods? <laughs> uh, my guests are Michael J. Thompson and Gregory Smilowitz-Zucker. Uh, the book that they've co-edited is Anti-Science and the Assault on Democracy from Prometheus. This is Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI, New York 99.5 FM. The New York Times recently examined how a, a history text is uh, altered to suit more conservative schools in Texas as compared to California. Does that reflect a kind of twisting of the truth, uh, if not an actual attack? Absolutely. Um, I mean, well, one of the crucial factors is that uh, that the state of Texas is the largest purchaser of textbooks. So textbooks supply to science books as well. They, they it is the state they change, that they. But they, I mean, do they change science books? As as far as I know, yes, yes, um, and you know, um, but the the history question is crucial one because of uh you know the debates over the the very nature of the civil war i mean you have a whole generation or several generations um who are being um taught distorted conceptions of what happened um so and and this serves also a political agenda because that that becomes a base that can be mobilized to be resentful about um, policies affecting that are trying to redress historical ills uh, regarding race or even issues about gender, um, it, it's it's a real miseducation of, of of a whole segment of the country. And I think you know on that point, actually, I really think it's very important to understand the kind of power dynamics here. Uh, and I think about this argument from the early 20th century by a uh, uh, political scientist from Italy, Gaetano Mosca, who asked the question, how, how can you have a ruling class? How, how is it possible that a minority of the community can rule over a majority? And what you he see says, based on money, isn't it? You would think it would be based on money, but historically we see there's revolutions, there's overturnings of, of power. So he says, like, how is this possible? And he comes up with this fascinating argument, which boils down to this. The ruling class has to, has to prevent the masses from becoming unified. Mm-hmm. There has to be a way to form cracks and crevices within the, within the, the, the common public. And how does anti-science work to do this? Part one of the fundamental principles of science that overlap with democracy, I would say, modern democracy, is the idea of universalism, that, that certain rules or certain facts or certain things should be held as, as common. Two plus two is four. It can never be five. It can never be ten. Um, if I can give you, if I can legitimize an alternative way of understanding, say, the transformation of biological forms that doesn't require evolution as a theory, you can have your belief about the world, and I can have mine. I crack not only the idea, our conceptions about science, but I therefore legitimate, I have different beliefs from you. And that is fundamental to elites being able to, to hold on to control. Real elites, not the scientific elites, but elites with money or political power. Although he didn't invent the phrase, President Trump has certainly popularized the term fake news. Uh, on the other hand, uh, a number of politicians, like New York's Governor Cuomo, uh, say things like, I'm not a scientist, but, and then they go on to offer a view on a scientific issue, uh, like climate change. Perhaps some politicians don't like the idea of scientists being able to, uh, to tell them that they're wrong. Nobody does. 
No one does. But it's a question of degree and scope. And then people talk about uh, having their their truth. Right. Right. So that's the fragmentation. Your truth may not be my truth. No, and I think this is really, you know, when I was younger, I lived in China and um, for a couple of years. And one of the things I remember experiencing, the real difference was, this was in the the mid-1990s, was how news coverage was so, I mean, it was literally like you were living in another world. You're like, this doesn't make sense. And they would have totally different ways of understanding history. Uh, we actually invented uh, this thing and this thing. And like, there's no, there was, it was literally like a fracture. So this really does play into, say, when I talk about, say, human rights or other common things, there's a breakdown. Well, is China a good example? Because on the one hand, it's a repressive society. Uh, very anti-democratic, and yet it is one of the most technologically advanced societies in the world right now, if like, not the. Yeah, and I think that really goes to to the point that I was making earlier. Technology the, without science, without the science, the, the idea of the science and democracy uh, kind of nexus, this is where it this is where it can lead. Now, have some scientists aggravated the problem, perhaps by adopting a kind of a priestly mantle? I'm, I'm thinking about something like in the, the movie Gus, uh, Ghostbusters, where Bill Murray's <laughs> character tells somebody, back off, man, I'm a scientist. <laughs> and then, uh, then we have people like Richard Dawkins, who's antagonized people o- over his views on religion. Absolutely. Um, there are scientists who are off-putting, and there are, they are— Even if he may be right. Even if, they, even if you may be right. Um, there is a, an important role for um, reaching out to people diplomatically. Democratically. Uh, democratically. Not being arrogant. Exactly. Yeah, precisely. Yeah, I think it's, it's, it's a, uh, a flaw. But I think there's also another issue, and this was something that Michael and I were talking about before we— um, uh, came on the air was the issue of adopting almost a, a too too much confidence in the sciences, and Michael talk about, speaks about this with in relation to technology. But there's also a kind of fetishization of what we call scientism, the idea that the approaches of the natural sciences are so authoritative that they can infect other questions, you know. Or can't be questioned. Or can't be questioned, precisely. I mean, there's there's a quote that uh, I use in, in my chapter, which I love, and I think Michael actually introduced me to this, but it's from the physicist uh, Richard Feynman, where he says, science is the belief in the ignorance of experts. You, in that essay, you call for a rationally grounded radicalism. Well, uh, I, I just, uh, I wonder about things like a lot of research recently has been that used to be done by government has been turned over to the the private sector and then the world is becoming more and more multinational Uh, so uh, research uh, and uh, scientific work is being done in all over the world in other countries and and then we have things like universities uh, moving faster to patent research and to profit from it all of these complicating the situation? Complicating it and making the situation worse um, because in many ways science as an academic enterprise, as an actual activity, as I was saying before, is becoming more and more absorbed, not only into the private sphere, but for purposes of technology rather than necessarily for democratic ends. And that's an important distinction. So if we're unable to reestablish a healthy rationalism, where do you think we're headed? 
I think without uh, reestablishing at least some kind of insurgent rationalism, um, we are headed precisely in the direction that you suggested when you spoke about the fact that people speak of their truth. We're headed towards um, a society not only where there there's there there are the macro issues of climate change and um forest you know forest fires and bushfires and all these horrible things that are happening that we're witnessing but there's also um the increasing um uh, ghettoization of groups of people around um their shared beliefs you see this on, on the internet and also the um isolation of individuals who will just um feel no need to not offer justification for their beliefs or views but just the, that the bare assertion of these views becomes a justification in and of itself. My guests have been Gregory Smolowitz-Zucker and Michael J. Thompson, uh, co-editors of a book called Anti-Science and the Assault on Democracy, published by Prometheus. It's been a great pleasure talking you. with you. Thanks for having us. Thank you so much. And that brings us to the end of today's show. Special thanks to Hugh Sansom, who produced this segment. If you're new to our program and you like what you've been hearing, you can access past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. We're also available as an iTunes podcast. And don't forget to check out Leonard Lopin at Large on Facebook and Twitter and on our website, LeonardLopinAtLarge.com, where you can find links to all of our past shows. We hope you'll join us again on Monday when, in honor of Martin Luther King Day, I'll be playing some of the greatest recordings from the golden age of black gospel music. Have a great weekend. Thank you.